Once again, this is Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with his people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Please pray with me as I ask for God to help us with this passage. O oh Lord, we look at your word And sometimes it feels very distant from our experience. We look at this passage uh, with references to ceremonies and to certain customs that we do not experience in our day-to-day life. I pray that you would help us to understand what you're trying to say to your people in this passage. What you're trying to say that is relevant, that matters to us, that is helpful, that can be encouraging. I pray that you would convict us, convict our hearts, Lord, of the ways that we serve idols, that we serve our own desires, our own masters, instead of turning to you and trusting and hoping in you. I pray especially that you would send your spirit upon us to open our hearts, to open our eyes, to understand what it is that you want us to know from this passage. I pray that you would not let us leave here the same, but that you would change us, that you would work in our hearts. I pray especially that you would work in my heart, O Lord, that you would help me to talk about this passage in a way that is good and true and helpful, and that for all of us, that through this passage, we would gain an even greater understanding of the grace and mercy that you have for us. It is in your son's name I pray. Amen. In the early 1900s, the Times of London, which is a newspaper, put out a essay contest, or kind of like a letter to the editor contest. And they posed this question to several prominent authors and thinkers of the age. They asked them to write a letter to the editor saying, what is wrong with the world today? What is wrong with the world today? There was a well-known author named G.K. Chesterton, who's a Christian. He is said to have responded with a one-sentence essay, less than ten words. He said, dear sirs, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. And what he means by this, what he was getting at, is that the problem with the world is not just 
philosophies or economic systems or on its own inequality or any other sort of form of suffering. But what is wrong with the world according to the Bible, where strife, suffering, pain, where the the negative consequences of all these other things comes from, is mankind. Or, uh, to to be more blunt, as the Bible puts it, it is sin. Sin. The reason that you and I do not feel at peace, the reason that we don't feel at home in this world is because of sin. The reason that you keep choosing things that are destructive to yourselves and to your neighbor, the answer is sin. You and I are sinners. We are fallen in sin. We have something called a sin nature, which just is another way of saying that every aspect of our being, our minds, our hearts, our our decision-making faculties, our capacity to know and understand things is corrupted and impacted by sin. And ultimately, that's what this passage is talking about, is sin. It is a warning that God gives to the Israelites. It's a warning and also a promise, a warning and an encouragement. God, through his prophet Haggai, is illustrating what happens with sin, what has been happening. He kind of is diagnosing what's been going on with the Israelites. And even through all of it, he graciously promises to bless them anyway, even though they're are tempted to be turned away from him, even though they are polluted and corrupted by sin, God promises to bless them anyway. And what I want you to see, a general sort of principle for studying the Old Testament, but especially for this passage, is the the sort of surface-level external things that you see, whether it's the discussion about the food or the talk about the shortages in the land, The external things, oftentimes in the Old Testament, point to a deeper spiritual reality. They point to a deeper spiritual reality. But the main point that I want you all to see tonight is that even though we are sinners, even though we are sinners, God promises to bless us. God promises to bless his people, even though the church, God's people, is made up to to every person, 100%, made up of sinners and hypocrites, God promises to bless us anyway. I have three points, three aspects of sin for y'all tonight. Departing from my usual two two points for y'all. Three points. One is the problem of sin. What is the problem that sin produces for us? The problem of sin, the pain of sin, and then God's promise for sinners. So the problem, the pain, and the promise. First off, the problem of sin. Looking at this passage, it opens with kind of a weird interaction. In verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment or touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or any other kind of food, does it become holy? The priests were the keepers of the law. They were the keepers of God's law. God had given them the law at Mount Sinai. He had given them a whole list of legal codes that governed all kinds of different aspects of life, whether sort of moral principles how God's worship is to be observed and carried out, as well as, in the time that Israel was kind of an independent kingdom, laws for how their government was supposed to work. And the the priests were in charge of keeping it, of preserving this law, and of interpreting it and applying it to different situations. So the law has a lot of general principles, and sometimes there are specific instances that the law doesn't explicitly cover. And so the the priests were responsible 
for applying them to specific situations. And so the, the prophet Haggai is asking the priests to make an official ruling interpreting the law of God. And he asks this kind of weird question. If someone's carrying holy meat, which, that's, what does that mean? <laughs> In the fold of his garment and touches other food, does that become holy? Well, what's going on here is holy meat is any type of meat that was sacrificed to God. Sacrificed on an altar to the Lord. And there were certain sacrifices that uh, had to be completely given over to the Lord, but there were certain sacrifices that, that the people would sacrifice, and then they would get certain cuts of the meat to take home. And that's kind of what's in, in mind here. The people in those days, they don't have pockets, and so they had long robes that they would like kind of fold over, and they would put, the, put food, and they would carry it in their little garment, because they don't have pockets, uh, unfortunately. I would not want to live in that time. Uh, that does not sound good to me. So the question is basically, if, if some holy meat touches something, does it transfer its holiness? Does it transfer its goodness by touching it? And the priests are like, no. But the reverse we see in verse 13, Haggai asks, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priests answer and say, according to the law, it does become unclean. That's very interesting. It tells us that the unclean thing that touches something that is not unclean it pollutes or defiles it. It makes it unclean by that contact. Something that is good, just by coming into contact with something that is maybe neutral, does not necessarily transfer that goodness or holiness. But something that is unclean, something that is ritually defiled when it comes into contact with something either that is clean or that is maybe neutral, it spreads its uncleanness. And you see this terminology all through the Old Testament, cleanness versus uncleanness. But it's never just about like actual cleanliness. That's not, God is, that's not what God actually cares about. It's pointing to a spiritual reality. Spiritually, God is good and holy. He is pure, without any sin, without any evil. He is completely and utterly good. And that is a problem for the Israelites because they are sinners, we see in verse 14. Haggai answered and said, So it is with his people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their, their hands, what they offer there is unclean. It's not that they are sort of just unclean because they're failing to observe some rituals. They are unclean because their hearts are sinful. Because they have sin in their hearts, they desire to be their own lords, their own masters. They set up their own idols. Spiritually, the Israelites are defiled. One commentator writes about this passage and says, Israel had been set apart by the Lord as holy, but that did not mean that all that they did was on that account sacred and acceptable to God. God's people were set apart and holy, but because of their sin, they had made themselves unclean. And what that, that really gets at is the, the fact that sin makes us unfit to be in the presence of God. God is so pure, so holy, so good, that any sin, anything that is morally polluted, morally corrupt, that enters into his presence, is incinerated, is destroyed. God cannot be in the presence of sin because it's not just because he's you know, a neat freak or anything like that. But it's because when sin comes into the presence of God, it is obliterated. Which is very bad news for you and for me. That is the main problem of sin. That if we are sinners, and we are, we cannot on our own 
draw near to God. The Israelites, nothing that they can do is pleasing to God because they have sin in their hearts. And that has polluted and corrupted everything that they do with their hands. So that's the first problem of sin. The second problem that sin presents is that our sin pollutes even our good works. Right? Like we said earlier, the, 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 the person who is unclean, he touches something, he makes that other thing unclean. Our sin, remember, we are sin, sinful in every aspect of our being, in our thoughts, in our minds, in our hearts, in our deeds. And so no matter how hard we try to clean ourselves up, to, to make ourselves clean, to make ourselves righteous, our good works are continually corrupted and polluted and ruined by sin. We cannot deal with the problem ourselves. Holiness is not transferable. It's another way of thinking about it. Holiness is not transferable, but sinfulness, moral defilement, moral depravity, that is transferable. And we see the effects of that spread out from our lives into the lives of others, into the world. Sin permeates every fiber of our life. You might ask, what is sin? Sin is any way in which we fail to do what God wants us to do, or we do things that God does not want us to do. God, as the creator of the universe, as the absolute pinnacle of all that is good, has set boundary lines around us to protect us, to lead us in ways that are good for us to live, and yet we love to be in control. And so we choose to sin over and over again. Our good works are stained by sin. Another way of thinking about it is um, we do not sin simply because, uh, or, or we, we do not become sinners simply because we sin. We were born in sin. We have been sinners our whole lives. We sin because of our sin nature. Our works are stained by sin. We cannot make ourselves good. We cannot clean ourselves up to come to God. That is the problem of sin. We are powerless to address it. And we continually try to. But it's futile. This is a, a silly illustration. I love, uh, I love watching reels on Instagram. I know that makes me old, I guess, because I don't use TikTok. But there's this one reel that I've seen a bunch of times that it, it, it stands out in my mind. And there's this video of this little kid, he must have been like four or five, who's getting juice from the refrigerator. And he's, he, he, he's so little that he has to set his cup on the floor and he gets like a carton of juice and he pours a little bit and he spills a little bit, but he, he's able to make it not too bad. And he picks up the juice and he's walking to the dining table and then he drops one of his cups on the floor and he spills a cup. And he, he's like, oh no, I spilled. And he goes and he gets a paper towel and he cleans the floor, but mostly it's just like him rubbing the juice around the floor because he didn't get enough paper towel. And then he goes back and he refills his juice cups again and he's going back walking right through the patch that he'd spilled the juice on and he slips like in a cartoon and falls right on his back and both cups of juice go flying. And it's even worse than it was in the beginning. It's completely out of hand. There's juice everywhere. He's not, not only is the floor soaked, but he is soaked. There's nothing that he is going to be able to do. You know, given all the time in the world and all the cleaning supplies that he could have access to, there's still no way that he could clean himself up because he just isn't able to. He's four. That kid will never be able to clean them for the mess that he made. And it makes me laugh every time I watch it. What he needs is for his mom or his dad to come and clean up the spills that he made and to put him in the bath. 
What he needs is for someone else to clean up his mess. And in a similar way, you and I are powerless to clean ourselves up. You and I do not have the ability. We need someone else to clean us. We are sinners and everything we touch becomes defiled. We need someone to make us clean. We need someone who, if he was to reach out to us and hold us, that our uncleanness would not pass to him. That our defilement would not pass to him. If this is true, I would ask you, where are you trying to clean yourself? Where are you trying to wash yourself from sin? Because we all are tempted to do it. We don't like to rely on someone else cleaning us for us. Are you trying to wash yourself with good works? Maybe you're just trying to distract yourself from the reality that you struggle with sin. Are you trying to wash yourself by numbing out, looking at TV or looking at stuff on your computer, playing video games, just distracting yourself, whatever that might look like for you? Maybe you're just like really mean to yourself, really unkind, saying, you know, get it together, try harder. All of these things, if you are fixed on trying to clean yourself, to to wash yourself from sin, it's only going to lead to you feeling distant from others, frustration because you can't do better, and discouragement. Because the truth is that we cannot deal with sin on our own. But that's that's not all. That's not all that sin does. It's not just a problem. It also causes pain, which brings me to my second point, the pain of sin. Haggai calls the Israelites to reflect on the last several years. They've experienced famine. That's what verses... 15 uh, to 17 kind of communicate. Consider from this day onward, before stone was placed on stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. This is a reference to a wheat harvest, kind of a, a pile, a heap of wheat. And in a group, in a field, in a gathering of uh, wheat that normally would produce 20 measures, there were but 10, 50% of the farming yield that the Israelites expected. Or when, when one came to the wine vat, the wine press, to draw out 50 measures of wine. A measure is just a unit of measurement. Um, there were but 20, less than half of what the Israelites expected there to be. This was not good. Because the natural consequence of sin is pain and suffering. It's like the, the natural order of things. Right? God is the source of life. God is the creator of everything. And the whole universe is held together by the word of his power. But if we choose things apart from him, when we are cut off from him, sin is a choice to face away from God, to, to find hope, to find trust, to find rest away from God. We wither and die because we weren't designed to live that way. Sin is a cruel master. And it leads to pain, suffering, feelings of emptiness, ruin, and futility. That's not only is the, for the Israelites, are they struggling with this actual material deficiency, right? They don't have enough food. But more than that, that, that's a picture of what's going on in their souls. Where they expect them to be full, they are empty. Where they hoped to find nourishment, they find hunger. That's what happens with sin. That is part of the pain of sin, the consequence of sin. It makes me think of, and it's not just, you know, for us, but but everyone that we encounter, every sin, every way that we interact with each other, every way that the world interacts with other parts of the world, it leads to pain and ruin. 
Not just for the one who is sinned against, but also for the one who's doing the sinning, who's, who's doing the hurting. It makes me think of, in the movie, Little Women, and the book, I guess, when Amy burns Joe's manuscript, and she does it out of an instant of rage and anger and jealousy. Joe is writing a, a book, and her sister Amy is jealous of some of the attention that she's getting, and so she burns it. And immediately there is pain and suffering for Joe. Like her work, this is something that she has worked on and poured herself into for weeks. But pain and suffering spreads like a wildfire through the whole family. Joe is angry at Amy, and Amy herself feels the pain of that, being excluded, being looked down on, feeling the guilt of that. But more than that, it spills over from just Amy and Joe into the rest of the family. And it culminates right in Amy trying to go and make things right with Joe, and then she falls through some ice and almost dies. Something that was relatively small, burning some pieces of paper, has a cascading effect in the lives of the March family that almost leads to one of them dying. Even the smallest sin in your life can have a similar cascading effect in terms of pain and suffering. Sin, whether it is against God against another person, or against yourself, leads to consequences. But another thing I want you all to see in here is the source of this suffering. In verse 17, God says, I struck you and the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. God allows the Israelites to experience this pain and suffering due to their sin. He doesn't hold it back. It's implied that he could have held it back. But he doesn't hold it back because he knows that lovingly allowing them to feel the consequences of their sin will draw them back to him. This is a concept that the Bible calls discipline. God, as our Father, lovingly allows us sometimes to feel the pain of our sins so that we will learn, that we will grow, that we will know that it is not something that will give life for us. As God calls the Israelites to reflect on their past, that is something that he is using to draw them to himself, to bring them home, to help them to see that hoping in their own efforts, to, that hoping in their own labors, their own economic security, was not something that was good for their souls. God is wise enough to be able to use the suffering of the Israelites, the consequence of the Israelites' sin, for their good. And I want to be very clear here. I'm not saying, what I'm not saying here, is that if you are suffering, it's because you've sinned. That's not what I'm saying. But rather, pain, suffering, and death are byproducts of and that go along with sin. You might not be suffering because you sin, but if you engage in breaking God's law, if you value an idol, if you value something else more than him, if you want to be the Lord of your own life more than you want to know Jesus and to know God, if you want to live apart from the love of God, someone will be in pain. It might be you, it might be someone else. But someone will be suffering. Sin leads to suffering. Not all suffering is caused by sin, but sin leads to suffering. Not a broader scale, like on a bigger, in a bigger context, the only reason that you and I feel pain and suffering, according to the Bible, the only reason that we live in a world that is impacted by those things is because of sin. God created a world that was without sin, where there was no sin, there was no pain, there was no suffering. But he gave Adam and Eve the freedom to choose to follow his will, to follow his law, or to reject God's loving, sovereign rule and to choose 
to revolt against him, to, to be in sin against him. God created a world without sin, a world that he allowed to be stewarded by mankind. And when Adam sinned in the garden, it impacted all of creation. Sin came in and it infected and permeated everything. But that's not the end of the story of the Bible, and that's not the end of this passage. God also promises to fix it. I know we've been talking a lot about sin, the problem of it, and the pain of it. But there's also a promise in this passage. There's also a hope. There's also a forward a forward-lookingness to this passage. Which brings me to my final point. The promise for sinners. This passage ends in an interesting way. God calls the Israelites to consider some fruit trees in verse 19. Is the seed in the barn, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing? And he's drawing attention to that because them having not yielded anything is not a part of the famine that they've been experiencing. These fruit trees, uh, their season for harvest has not yet come. And he says, but from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. He's saying, look ahead to the next harvest. I'm promising I'm going to make it an awesome one. From this day on, I will bless you. He promises to the Israelites, even though they've been stained by sin, even though they have been made unclean, even though they have been suffering because of their own actions. He says, from this day on, I will bless you. He invites them to consider their situation, the future potential blessing in God's promise to bless them. And that, sh- that, that changes the Israelites. It changes their experience of their circumstances. Because our future hope, looking to the future and hoping in it, it changes the way that we experience our present. But we have it, you and I experience that hope even better than the Israelites had. Right? God is telling them, from this day on I will bless you, but we can look back in history and see exactly how God did it. We can see exactly what God has done to bless us. Because God solves the problem of our sin by taking care of it himself. Jesus entered into the suffering of sin by taking it upon himself and taking the pain and punishment for it uh, that, that would belong to us, taking it upon himself. Jesus received our moral defilement, our sin upon himself, but he did not become a sinner. Right? Like in, in, a, in a unique way, in all of history, though, though typically moral uncleanness pollutes, Jesus took our moral uncleanness upon himself, but he never became a sinner. It did not change him. He bore our sins on the cross and destroyed them forever. And in doing so, he made us clean. Jesus demonstrates this throughout his life and ministry. Jesus touched what was unclean and made it clean. He touched things that were unclean and made them holy. Because Jesus' holiness is transferable to us. Jesus touched uh, a couple times in the ministry. He touched a person that was afflicted with leprosy under the law. The same law that Haggai is quoting here. It would have made Jesus unclean. But Jesus' touch for the leper didn't make Jesus unclean, but it it healed the leper. It drove out the uncleanness. There was a woman with a discharge of blood, which would have have made her ritually unclean. She thought to herself, if only I can touch the hem of Jesus' robes, he will heal me. Her touching anyone else would have made them unclean. It would have been a really unkind thing to do, actually, according to the law that Haggai quotes. But when she touched Jesus' robe, she was made clean. 
In Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe that he's the son of God, if you ask in him for forgiveness of sins, you can be washed. You can be healed. You can be saved from the problem of sin. It is by God's grace, unearned love, through faith, through belief in Jesus Christ. It is according to nothing that we have done. Absolutely nothing. We are completely helpless on our own. But it is all what God has done for us, which frees us to return a gift of love and obedience back to him. Living a life that is pleasing to him, not because we have to, but because we get to. Living in ways that honor him, not because we need to to earn our way into his good graces, but because doing so is good for us, because we love him. There's a pastor named Ricky Jones who writes about the first Christmas that he bought his mom a present. The first Christmas he bought his mom a present. He was in the fourth grade, and he was upset about not being able to buy his mom a present. He was the youngest kid in a big family, and so all of his older siblings were talking about buying his mom something. And he was very upset about it. He was moping and complaining, and his mom noticed that he was upset about that. Later in the week, his mom looked out over the yard and said, man, there's so many sticks in the yard. If someone, man, I really wish that someone would clear them out, I would pay $10 for someone to move these sticks. And Ricky hurried outside and he cleared out all the sticks, which was a part of his chores. Like, he should have been doing it. He didn't, (laughs) he wasn't, he, he shouldn't have gotten any money for it. It was part of his normal weekly chores. But he does it and his mom paid him the money. And then his mom says, you know, I'm going to the store to do some shopping later. Would you like to come with me? And on his way to the store, his mom mentioned that she had seen some necklaces at the store and wished that she was like, oh, I wish that I could have one. And at the store, Ricky races up to to find these necklaces and he sees that they're $9. Ricky buys one, he puts it in a bag, and as soon as he gets home, he runs to his room to wrap it and put it under a tree, under the tree, the Christmas tree, not any tree. But Ricky's in the fourth grade, and he makes an absolute mess of uh, wrapping the present. It looks terrible. He uh, cuts the paper, and it doesn't fit, and he just tries over and over again. But because he's in fourth grade, he can't do it. And so he's, he's frustrated. He's almost in tears. He asks his mom for help. So in the, he brings her the box. She wraps it up, makes it look neat and tidy. On Christmas morning, Ricky goes to get the present for his mom that she had paid for that she drove him to get, that she had picked out, and that she had wrapped. She unwrapped the box that she had lovingly wrapped. She puts the necklace on her neck, and she grabs Ricky and says, I love it. Thank you so much. It is exactly what I wanted. I think that is a really beautiful picture of the way that God views our obedience of the way that God views our lives in Christ. This is what it means to be loved by God. Our feeble and impotent efforts at loving him and serving him are taken by him and turned into something beautiful. We cannot do it on our own. Jesus' love, goodness, holiness is ours if we believe in him. How would it change you if you really believed that? If you believed that Your life with God, your life in Christ, was something that was entirely given to you by God. And so there was nothing that you could do to add to it or take away from it. 
I think that it would free you to rest, to rest from trying to justify yourselves, to work hard as to the Lord, not because you felt like you had to prove something or because you felt like you needed to earn something, but because you get to work, you get to love God, you get to love your neighbor. You and I live in a world that is beset by sin and we struggle with it. But we have a Savior that is greater than our sin. In this passage, the Israelites saw the law where something unclean, if it touched something else, it made it unclean. But when our uncleanness comes into the contact of the source of goodness, holiness, and righteousness that is so pure and powerful and infinite, nothing can quench it. If Jesus has touched you, you are no longer defiled. You are a new creation. You are forgiven, washed, cleansed, and made new. This is how God looks at you. Let's pray. The Lord, we thank you.